The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk on 92.7 and 106 FM. What a Tuesday it has been. An astonishing day of joy and jubilation and excitement and just uh, people just overwhelmed by the power of the Springboks returning home today. And the scenes were amazing. We'll reflect on that this evening as the president calls a public holiday for the 15th of December. Why it's a terrible idea and why we need to be careful of make setting dangerous precedents. We'll also this evening catch up with Kaz Kovadia, head of the medium-term budget policy statement as government looks to cut, cut, cut. The president hinted at it in that very strange mini sonar last night. Um, it was a, a, a slightly odd um, a slightly odd circumstance where the president delivered a very compelling half-hour delivery celebrating and connecting himself and the ANC to the Springbok victory and also spelling out some home truths on the state of the economy. Uh, we'll chat to Chris Yelland about the state of ESCOM. Terrible results out of ESCOM today, much worse than expected. And there was some interesting statistics from Statistics South Africa today. And Statistics South Africa pointing out that our use of public services is plummeting because those public services are not being provided. And therefore, the revenues of public sector entities are in a huge amount of trouble. I'll bring you up to speed on those numbers coming up. Brendan Seary, the editor of Orchids and Onions with our advertising Heroes and Zeros. Diana Games with our Africa business focus. And then the founder at traderscorner.co.za, Garth McKenzie tonight in our investment school. He is the headmaster and it's all about how to get yourself trading if that's what you want to do on the money show this evening the money show with bruce whitfield on 702 702 the Money Show, of course, brought to you by APSA CIB, raising a glass to celebrate APSA's pan-African excellence. APSA is a registered FSP. So a statement today from the Pretoria-based law firm Kaywood Attorneys. It's found itself embroiled in the mess of the BHI trust investment scam, confirming it is an investor in the trust. Somebody told me last week it's been around since 1997. Law firm launched and was granted an urgent sequestration application against the BHI trustees, Craig Warriner, the guy who handed himself over to cops and asked not to be let out, uh, and a guy called Christian Ashcroft last week. Uh, still nobody knows how much has been lost. Still nobody knows whether there's any value left in the trust. And also no idea how big the losses are. All that they are saying now is that it is determined this sum is significant, which is a vague enough. But um, there have been people appointed to try to get to the bottom of the catastrophe and the investigations are going to go on for some time. Uh, Kaywood Attorney says its own preliminary research shows that this mess is far more complex and intricate than was first believed or that is being reported. Uh, Let's get to the big celebrations today at the Rugby World Cup. The World Cup arriving home to where it belongs, of course, and the rapturous welcome at Oartambo this morning. How Mandy and Clement were able to hear themselves think is beyond me. Huge jubilation, and it's going to be repeated, no doubt, as the World Cup does visits around the country this week. Also this week, of course, the medium-term budget policy statement. It's going to be a bit like a visit to the dentist during load shedding, and 
the, the, when logistics broke down and there's nothing left to deaden the pain. But hopefully an upside Thursday, Friday, with the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act um, all looking pretty much on track after looking fairly tenuous earlier this year. We're hosting a summit in South Africa. The importance of that summit at a time of national jubilation and excitement and joy uh, as we look to the practicalities of improving our economic outlook. Justin Chadwick is the chief executive at the Citrus Growers Association and AGOA is just so absolutely critical for exporters such as yourselves, Justin, because it creates opportunity for growth, opportunity for new markets and opportunity to get your product um, onto some of the most uh, lucrative shelves in the world. Yeah, uh, definitely uh, AGOA is essential for uh, growers that are exporting to the U.S. at the moment. So we only have access from the Western Cape and the Northern Cape at the moment, uh, which represent about 15% of our industry. But probably more importantly, AGOA gives a, a platform for discussions on, on wider access as well for other regions um, f- throughout the rest of South Africa. Why, for example, is the Eastern Cape excluded from AGOA, the Eastern Cape with um, the, the huge citrus-growing regions the, of, of that part of the world? Yeah, it's, it's a legacy issue, Bruce. So um, it's all about the phytosanitary requirements in the U.S., before the U.S. had citrus black spot, they didn't accept any citrus from uh, citrus black spot areas. Uh, but since Florida now has has CBS, um, they have allowed both Uruguay and Argentina access into the U.S. Um, our access uh, application is at the final rule stage. It has been there for almost seven years now, a process that should have taken six months. Um, and it's all tied up with uh, other trade issues. And, and in, in the U.S. case, it's around meat issues that they want to send uh, to South Africa. So it it is very irritating um, and we are hopeful that maybe the discussions in the next couple of days might uh, take us forward. What, I I mean, are you attending the AGOA Summit, Justin? Are you hoping to go in there and bend some arms and twist, uh, or twist some arms rather than bend them? I think twisting is better. Yeah, as a a matter of fact, Bruce, I was in Washington last week, so I managed to meet with some of the people that are coming out here and and discuss with them our issues and and, uh, where we want to go forward and and explain to them the importance of of wider access. You know, um, our Mandarin uh, volumes are growing significantly in the Eastern Cape and Limpopo region, um, and the U.S. consumers crying out for good quality Mandarin. So, um, yeah, I am attending the the business uh, forum, which is on Thursday. What what are the big things that you're hoping to get out of the Agoa Summit, Justin? I mean, you guys are big exporters. You're heavily dependent, of course, on export markets. I remember Whitey Basson telling me at the Franchuk Literary Festival, he's uh, in his retirement as a part-time citrus farmer up in Citrus Dull, I think. And he was saying if Agoa fell away, um, he would have to cut two-thirds of his workforce and he would exports would collapse and the trees would just simply go go to seed and go to rot um, in the orchards. It, it's a critical market for South Africa as a growing region. What are, you, what are the big three things you're hoping to do to see out of AGOA? Yeah, so, so obviously the one uh, big thing is for AGOA to continue in South Africa not to be graduated out and to continue with full benefits. I mean, that's the most essential part for, for the existing uh, um, exporters to the, um, to the U.S., which, as I say, come from the Western Cape and, and the Northern Cape. And the second thing we're hoping for is that, um, that that the additional areas get accepted into the U.S. Um, and that relies on sort of the third, which is good discussions on, on the meat products that the U.S. want to send to South Africa because they are 
unfortunately tied up. Um, that's unfortunately how uh, the politics of trade works. Uh, and so we're hoping that, that those two will be uh, progressed. Uh, and, and, yeah, it, it's, it's seriously important for our industry. If we're going to reach the goals of 260 million cartons by 2032, the U.S. market has to open up for the rest of South Africa. We saw a goer potentially at risk with the Lady R ship in Simonstown Harbour and Ambassador Brigitte staking his life on the fact that there were weapons on the ship. That made us feel very, very vulnerable. Since then, government seems to have come to the party far more. At one stage, it seemed to be less concerned about a goer than I would have liked. It does seem to have sort of stepped up its game quite considerably in the last six months and have be taking the opportunity of a goer far more seriously. No, that's definitely the case. I mean, we were very worried um, when there was a lot of uh, coldness between the, the, the two countries. But as you said, it seems to have improved. Obviously, the Israeli conflict's not helping because we seem to be on different uh, pages in terms of that. But it, in all my discussions last week in, in Washington, there was a warm feeling towards South Africa. I didn't get any indication that, uh, that there was any animosity or any reason why they would uh, look at keeping us out um, in, in, a, in a future go. Justin, thank you. Justin Chadwick is the Chief Executive of the Citrus Groves Association. Just giving us perspective this evening on the Money Show on AGOA, which is the AGOA Summit kicks off. And the fact that we're hosting it here, I think, is a good thing. Um, and I think it's a positive thing as well that we're, we're talking about it again. Yeah, we've got ideological differences. There are big gaps in geopolitics. There are big gaps in um, the, the way in which the South African government sees global conflicts, particularly in Ukraine and particularly in uh, Israel and Gaza. Those differences are marked and significant, but they're not the sort of things that should be unsettling trade. They certainly should not. So a wonderful Twitter interaction today between a man called James Hall, who I think is a, a, a journo based in Swaziland, um, who says, congratulations, Ned Bank Swaziland. For decades, farmers couldn't get bank loans because there was no capital for collateral. A new dead bag policy accepts Swazi's beloved cattle as collateral for loans after there's been a veterinary appraisal. And that makes a lot of sense as well. I remember traveling through Botswana um, and uh, with, a, with a ranger and sort of looking at the homesteads and things as we were driving towards the the area where the, the the swamps are and everything else, and just pointing towards the relative modesty of the homesteads. And the guy said to me, yeah, military ex-military guy, well, you know, that guy's probably worth a lot more than you because of his cattle. And you know, absolutely right, there were many, many cattle. Michael Udan, then, of course, banker that he is, comes back and says, what? You know, loans that are, so, you know, b- backup of cattle as collateral? Well, of course, in Africa, you'd have to call that cow-lateral, wouldn't you? You're with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. I'm loving the World Cup here as much as you are, but I don't believe it warrants a public holiday. I think it also sets a dangerous precedent. Uh, the president last night announcing that there would be a public holiday to celebrate South Africa's uh, victory on the rugby field, but very quickly said, and also lots of other great performances. Manana Banyana is doing nicely, and look at the cricketers. Oh, I'm going to go to watch the final in Mumbai if we get to the final. He made that promise last night. He's got to be careful of the promises he makes, because about a month ago, somebody said to him, will we have a public holiday if we win the Rugby World Cup? And he went, yes, of course. He's a politician after all. 
suddenly he's asked to account for it and said, we'd like a public holiday. Most of you are really grumpy that he didn't declare a public holiday this week. That probably declared the week as a public holiday to celebrate the great victory at rugby. But I think it's dangerous. What happens, I don't know, if our women's netball or banyana banyana or hockey players or, I don't know, swim teams or golfers start winning big things on global stages again. Wouldn't that set a dangerous precedent? We're going to want a public holiday for every victory. Andrew Levy is the Labour analyst at Andrew Levy and Associates on the line to us from Johannesburg. I don't know if you're as grinchy about this as I am, Andrew, but I look at our suboptimal economic growth rate, which is dramatically under our population growth rate. And we've effectively been in recessionary circumstances on that basis for a dozen years or more. I don't know if South Africa can afford another public holiday, even if it is sort of wedged in on a Friday in the middle of December when most of us are on holiday anyway. I agree with you totally. And if one looks at the overall public holiday issue, as opposed to this one specifically, it's not just the loss of the day's productivity. Um, and the cost to the employer of having to pay without getting anything in return. Inevitably, um, it leads to the second most frequent um, incidence of absenteeism. After Mondays and Fridays, the days before public holidays, after public holidays, and the long weekend syndrome means that effectively you can lose three days to a week. Um, and that is the last thing. Uh, and the most recent figures on our labor productivity, looking at our unit labor costs, are uh, absolutely clear. The trend continually shows that our unit labor costs are going up, which means that it costs us more and more to produce less and less. So, you know, if you look at the question of what's good for the country, um, no, uh, I think there's another dimension to this as well. You know, we're all delighted with the Boca and they've done us proud. It was a great game, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, you, you, you might even look at this as a cheap political trick. Um, you know, no, really? <laughs> I'm reminded of my, my old Latin master at school, uh, you know, who would tell us that the way to stay in power if you were an emperor was bread and circuses. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that... Uh, uh, yes, it might be an exercise in nation building, but I think that uh, um, the intention, if you were cynical, uh, is to say, look, aren't we the good guys? We're giving you another day. Um, you know, in terms of the timing, the companies usually stop, as, as we all know, for the quote-unquote builders' holidays, and the 16th is, uh, is the day, but not the 15th as well. So that's going to mean that the factory is effectively going to do little or no work that week. Um, and, uh, you know, just, just once again, uh, we've got to say, are there not other ways we could uh, develop national cohesiveness and uh, try and do something which would be good for everyone? Um, and, and the one thing that people lose sight of is if you're unemployed, whether it's a public holiday or not, makes absolutely no difference. You don't get paid anyway, and all it means is that the uh, the shops are closed and a lot of the things you might want to do um, to try and stay, uh, you know, slightly more optimistic uh, are not available. Uh, and, you know, once again, one can, can make the point of exactly who uh, is the state president and his advisors uh, trying to pander to here. 
it certainly can't be the unemployed uh, who are the greatest. Certainly not. Absolutely. It's not the unemployed and it's not the business owners who've got to pay for it. Thank you, Andrew Levy. Labour analyst at Andrew Levy and Associates. I think it's a compelling argument as to why we shouldn't have a public holiday on the 15th, but it's done. Um, The 16th, which is a Saturday this year, is the Day of Reconciliation. Surely we could have put more of a sporting theme. We could have had big events. We could have celebrated and commemorated on that day. Um, And this is paying fast and loose, unfortunately, with the economy. It's only one day out of 365. Yes, I know that. Don't shout at me. But this is an additional cost for employers. Employers already bear far too much of a burden of cost to keep this economy afloat. So, yeah, um, the chief executive of uh, Productivity South Africa, Mutunio Motiba, and Andrew Levy, both saying today South Africa simply can't afford the extra day off. Now, as an employee, as somebody who gets paid a salary to do the show, I'll have that day off. I'll probably work that day and get a leave credit and use it in my own time at some point. But I don't think it's a good idea. I really don't think that uh, the country is in a position where, despite the wonder, the joy, the excitement, the enthusiasm, the vigor, and the love that we all feel for the Springboks today should be commemorated with an unproductive day of the year. The Money Show. The Markets. Phone and shout at me if you like. 011-883-0702. WhatsApp on 072-702-1702. I'll take the abuse. I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take it for the team. Norman McKechnie, who is with Momentum Asset Management, is our market commentator this evening. The Rand suddenly had a big, vigorous spurt today, and it got nothing to do with the importing of gold, whatever the gold content of the World Cup is, Norman. We're not going to melt it down and make any money out of it. But certainly, I looked at the figures out of the Eurozone, the inflation number, is much better than expected. Coming at the cost of the economy, which is likely to go into recession fairly soon, Germany's already there. And I'm wondering if it's just saying, you know, the world's going to be deep, dark, slow down, no more interest rate hikes. Therefore, emerging market currencies will become flavor of the month again, we hope. Yeah, Bruce, I think that could be a, a, you know where we're going. I don't think it necessarily happens now. I think, the, you know, in terms of what the RAND has done, uh, obviously, you get volatility intraday, intraweek, whatever the rand is weak. And if you probably looked at uh, a number of indicators or uh, uh, rate uh, interest rate differentials, the rand could be a lot firmer than where it is now. Um, I think it also could be, uh, you know, uh, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, we have been oversold and all this is a, is a short-term correction. But, uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if you get some bad news out there that we actually go above 19 again. So, yeah, I don't think there's anything to hang one's hat on at the moment. Okay, not too much excitement there. Some excitement, though, for Impala. It bucked a trend, a negative resources sector today, came out with a big statement on cost-cutting. Sabania, of course, recently said it's struggling to make money out of it, four of its shafts in South Africa, and would be taking action that would affect nearly 4,100 jobs. Impala not going quite as far, I don't think, but does look to cut costs. It does. I think, you know, what you had there, uh, Bruce, is clearly the, the, the PGM prices have been weaker uh, getting onto the RAND. The weaker RAND, once you transfer those uh, dollar prices or translate those dollar prices uh, to RAND prices, clearly that weaker RAND has helped. Um, but the lower PGMs, uh, something like Rhodium, that was contributing more than 50, 50% uh, to their profits is well down from its highs. 
Uh, but yeah, I think it was really a question of uh, improving operational performance, which was good. You've obviously got the inclusion of uh, RB Platt's load shedding impact, I think, was lower, and you had higher volumes processed. I think sales volumes were up 17%. Uh, so clearly, cost cutting going forward. Uh, I imagine they will be if prices, uh, that's a platinum group metal prices stay where they are they will be sort of probably reviewing their operations further, rather like Sabanya has done. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, a good operational number, which uh, one likes to see, but the backdrop with weaker um, platinum group metal prices hasn't uh, helped uh, any of the uh, platinum uh, producing shares. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, platinum is not the best place in the world to be right now. What did you make of Woolies? getting into the pets business. They're buying 93% of a business called Absolute Pets. We featured them on the radio fairly recently. They talk right. about it being in their demographics and it's their market and, you know, wealthy people who shop in their shops have got pets and therefore if you can, you know, serve food to your customers and they then buy stuff from you for their pets, it's a it's a natural fit. Some people, and I've looked on social media today, say, hold on a second, but the management of Woolies, which has just got out of a mess in Australia, needs to be kept dare I say it, on a short leash. What do you think? Yeah, I just hope they haven't bought a pup, um, uh, Bruce. But yeah, <laughs> I, I, do, I, I, just, I, I do wonder whether it does actually fit in. You know, I think there's a, a lot to do. Uh, 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 they've done a lot. I think they've got a great offering. Uh, but I think there's a lot uh, that they could do with existing stores. And I think perhaps before they, uh, and it's easy to say with hindsight, before they went to Australia a number of years ago, that uh, they should have actually looked at SA. I think there's still scope to grow. Uh, there's scope to get their fa fashion uh, sorted out. Uh, I think they've sort of moved back uh, and tried to improve there. But yeah, I do battle in a way to see how it fits. It doesn't mean to say it won't fit. You know, you can go back and look at AVI when they bought Green Cross and everyone sort of said, well, how does this fit in with the food business? And it has done particularly well over time. Obviously, with uh, the consumer being under pressure at times, uh, profits did, uh, you know, they were cyclical. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it probably does fit in terms of the demographics, but uh, as a sort of core business, um, it probably isn't quite uh, you know, what one would like to see. Mm. Well, but people do spend insane amounts of money on their pets and, yeah, um, you know, specialist pet foods and all of that sort of stuff. You, there's a very small market that's prepared to do it, but boy, they're prepared to do it and they're prepared to do it consistently um, for, for their animals. Are you wearing a hard hat and a, and a bulletproof vest to work tomorrow, considering the medium-term budget policy statement and what it might include? I think there's a lot factored in there, Bruce. I think if you look at it, I mean, you obviously the currency coming back, you would say to yourself, well, what's that telling you? You know, if, if that was a focus for um, foreign investors and, and currency, people who are involved in our currency. Uh, the other thing would be looking at our bonds. I think if you look at our bonds and you sort of uh, break it down in terms of the various sort of parts, the inflation difference, where the U.S. Uh, tenure is, uh, what the uh, uh, what they call a credit default swap, which is just really insurance you buy if you want to buy SA bonds. And then you look at the differential, and that sort of uh, it, it makes up the difference. That has actually come back. Uh, that was above sort of three-odd percent. It's now probably 100 basis points below that. Admittedly, the U.S. bonds have kicked up over that period of time. But it really, uh, you know, th that risk factor that's priced into our bonds, uh, 
uh, has actually reduced. So I think it's largely priced in. We could get a surprise. I think the the the, um, the issue has really been the shortfall. Well, two issues. One has been the shortfall of revenue. Uh, company taxes down. I think the view is it could be 30 billion shortfall uh, for the six months. And then the other thing is just government expenditure, which uh, you alluded to in your opening in terms of uh, the president's speech last night in terms of wanting to get costs down. That's something we need to work at, and we haven't done particularly well in the latter. Uh, so, yeah, be, uh, it, it'll be interesting to see what happens. But uh, as I said, I think in terms of what the bonds have priced in, if you go back and look at things uh, six weeks ago, that uh, the, the risk that was priced in has actually come back, has reduced. Uh, it's probably down by a third. Thank you to Norman McKechnie, our market commentator this evening on a day where markets went down again under a bit of pressure, but it was all mostly, mostly due to a currency which was actually pretty bouncy on the day. Time for your latest eyewitness news. If you saw Zulu standing by. 702. Bruce is on the money show. Story from the art world, and it's a reminder of a story from about 2009. A Hungarian art historian was watching the 1999 movie Stuart Little. It's about a mouse and a relationship and a boy, and it's just lovely. Uh, the art historian, a guy called Gogli Barki, is watching this film, and suddenly looks in the background in one of the scenes and notices that there is a painting that's been missing for 90 years and it's been used as a prop in the movie. The painting is called Sleeping Lady with Black Vase by a Hungarian artist. It disappeared in the 1920s. This art historian immediately recognizes it from a faded black and white photograph and it was taken at an exhibition in 1928. He sends an email and a flurry of emails to staff at Columbia and Sony Pictures and he gets a reply eventually from the former set designer of the film two years later. And she found the painting that had been hanging on her wall. She bought it in an antique shop in Pasadena, thinking it was you know, very nice and would look good on the set. So she used it in the movie in Stuart Little's living room. Um, once this painting was rediscovered, of course, it went on auction once again in 2014, where it sold for $285,000. The set designer, of course, who had uh, put her painting that she'd bought from her junk shop in Pasadena, I think she paid about $40 or something for it. That's not a bad return on investment by any stretch of the imagination. So yeah, when uh, I suppose when a narrative meets reality, these things can be absolutely remarkable. Uh, it doesn't, I suppose, another story that was doing the rounds today and there was so much excitement and so much joy and so much happiness in the country. I don't mean to ruin your day, but I find it astounding astounding. Then uh, I don't know if it needs any more comment other than I'm astounded that the woman fired by parliament due to her scant regard for the law while she was public protector is now on the parliamentary committee that provides oversight of the justice system, including the office of the public protector. It's astonishing. I'm astounded. Uh, Busisi Kobane, now part of the FF, of course, she's an MP, um, is going to serve on the Justice Committee with the ANC's Kubudile Janchi and the DA's Glynis Breitenbach. That's going to be a fiery affair, I suspect. What an astonishing turn of events that the woman fired by Parliament is now in Parliament, not only in Parliament, but is on the very committee overseeing a sector which she has held 
in very low regard and has not shown an enormous amount of respect for. Um, it's a strange place on a strange and glorious day. Sorry to ruin your day. In a moment, we'll get hold of Cas Kovadia. Cas Kovadia, of course, is the chief executive of Business Unity South Africa. Chat to us about the medium-term budget policy statement, which happens tomorrow. And we, on the Money Show, we tend to avoid uh, budget previews, but I think this is worthwhile to do. We'll get to Cascovadia in just a little while. One of the issues that the medium-term budget policy statement is going to have to deal with is the issue of government debt. And not just government debt in government apartments, but in all of the state-owned enterprises. There are seven or eight hundred of the things, many of which are bankrupt. Uh, and Statistics South Africa today publishing figures which show a decline in our use of public services. Between 2019 and 2022, there's been a fairly dramatic decline. Public transport services, for example, um, has seen a massive 6% decrease uh, in people who use transport. So with the collapse of uh, Metro Rail and other train services, um, public transport services uh, has, have declined dramatically. Public clinics, use of those has declined dramatically. The use of the police has declined too as more and more people have gone to private uh, sector security. The use of public hospitals has declined markedly. Um, the use of home affairs offices, and this is probably a good thing. This is where banks have stepped in and said, come and use the bank of, uh, offices to make it a less awful experience. Um, the use of public schools, the use of uh, higher learning facilities as well, the use of the, the, I mean, just all sorts of public sector services. And I'm sure within that is electricity as well, because today's ESCOM results make for horror reading, of course, a much worse than expected set of financial results out of ESCOM. Although, Chris Yellen, the energy analyst at EE Business Intelligence, I can't imagine why we'd be surprised by the fact that ESCOM's losses are at record levels, the worst ever, based on the fact that they've had the worst year ever in terms of their ability to deliver electricity. We've never seen it quite as bad as it has been this year. Chris Yellen, I'm, if you Yellen, I'm not hearing Ah, okay. hello, Bruce. Sorry about there that. We go. There we go. There we go. We connected finally by the miracle of telecommunications. We shouldn't be surprised by how dreadful ESCOM's results are. No, it was a very, very bad year. You know, 270 days of load shedding. That's more than half the year. And uh, so it's a reflection of that uh, uh, very bad year. Uh, and uh, the sad thing is that uh, performance-wise, certainly in terms of number of days of load shedding, this year is going to be worse. And certainly Eskimo's prediction for the outlook for this current year uh, in terms of the loss is essentially about the same as last, as, the, as the year that was presented uh, today, which is the financial year ending 31st of March 2023. Yeah. And I mean, if you can't provide your product, um, nobody's going to buy it from you because they're not consuming it. And the cost of running your operations, of course, is going up, up, up and up. Uh, the lack of discipline internally within ESCOM, something that um, has been pointed out extensively by Andre Dereta, the former chief executive, now being reconfirmed, of course, by current management teams, um, is, is prevalent. That's right. And virtually every single metric and ratio that they presented on the year in question uh, was worse than uh, than previously. Uh, and um, uh, that's just the reflection of the year that was. In fact, uh, the, the only 
the only metric that seemed to be going in the right direction, and I'll talk to that, is, is the cost of renewable energy. So they said the cost of renewable energy, uh, you know, was uh, down by two percent, and that that is something, uh, you know, that that was one area of improvement. But frankly, it would have been far better if the cost of renewable energy, in terms of the amount that they had procured, had actually gone up by twenty percent. And that the cost of coal had gone down by 20%, but it was just the opposite way around. Cost of coal had gone up and the cost of renewable energy had gone down. So actually, even the fact that renewable energy cost was down is actually a bad metric indeed. And no, it does. I mean, look, the outlook, I think, is better than the, uh, hopefully the outlook for the next 15 years is better than the last 15. There, we are making uh, strides in terms of alternatives. We are making strides in terms of bringing new generation capacity to the grid. Um, ESCOM is, is, seems to be managing its fleet a little bit better than it was six months ago. Um, and I, I just wonder um, whether or not we are beginning to see the beginning of the end of the world period in ESCOM's history? Well, ESCOM did say that this current year, that is the year ending 31st of March 2024, uh, was going to be about as bad as the year that they just announced, uh, the results they just announced for. So I don't think we're going to see an improvement in the financial performance um, of ESCOM, uh, but certainly at an operational level, there is some signs of improvement in the operation, the operations of, of Eskom. But, uh, you know, we're not actually seeing enough new generation capacity, uh, not from Eskom and not from its procurements, not nearly enough. Proc- the procurements, the public procurement processes are actually very, very poor and slow. What we are seeing actually is the private sector uh, saving the day. That is where the new generation capacity is coming from. And initially, at this stage anyway, it's from the domestic and commercial and agricultural sectors. And in due course, the large mining projects uh, will come uh, to fruit as well. Uh, but that is the the private sector stepping in where the public sector and ESCOM have failed in terms of new generation capacity. Yep, absolutely tragic. And of course, tomorrow in the medium-term budget policy statement, somehow the finance minister is going to have to reaffirm his support for ESCOM in terms of the bailouts it's demanded, plus whatever other state-owned enterprises, Transnet and possibly others, um, have come to him with begging bowls for. Yeah, well, we've seen that you know National Treasury has come to uh, you know to the table with a bailout uh, of ESCOM debt um, uh, you know, to the tune of about, I'm just talking round figures here, 250 billion rand over the next three years. Um, and that will make a difference to strengthening ESCOM's balance sheet. Uh, but it still uh, has to be paid, uh, you know, if not by ESCOM, uh, uh, then by Treasury and ultimately it means uh, from the taxpayer. So uh, even, even though, you know, Treasury is coming to the table. Uh, we all pay for it in the end, one way or another. Absolutely. Chris Yellen, thank you. The energy analyst at EA Business Intelligence. At a moment, the chief executive at Business Unity South Africa, Kaz Kavadi, looking forward to that medium-term budget policy statement in a moment. 
The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB. Join APSA to toast and celebrate Pan-African excellence. APSA registered FSP. Well, tomorrow we find out uh, just how the National Treasury is going to balance the budget and uh, whether it's going to be dipping into the country's reserves, whether it's going to be borrowing more money on capital markets or it's found some kind of new miracle growth drug. Uh, and one or two of those is possible, I suppose. Kaz Kavadia, Chief Executive at Business Unity South Africa, is with us this evening. And... I listened to the president's address to the nation last night, and there were a couple of signals I thought in the address as to what we could expect. He mentioned that he'd recently spent hours with trade unions uh, last week. He described that encounter as positive. He mentioned our growing debt burden, the fact that as servicing it is the biggest cost item in the entire budget, bigger than the police budget and every other budget within the budget. He also warned that he would do all that he could to help preserve critical budgets, but that seemed to me to be a warning of austerity to come. And there was also support, and I thought quite strong and surprising support because we don't normally see that before a budget by the president for Enoch Gordon the finance minister, which tells me that tomorrow is going to be a really rough ride in terms of the budgeting process, Kaskovadi. Uh, I don't know what your reading is. Hi, Bruce. Thanks for having me. Yeah, look, I, I think that, you know, we tend to sort of overanalyze this. The bottom line is that I don't think we have too many choices. The bottom line is that the fiscal situation has got has deteriorated since the February budget. Uh, our debt uh, uh, to GDP ratio has gone up. Uh, it was Sorry, I've just been climbing stairs. Uh, it was at 70.9 percent in no, the it's previous to quarter. Again, yeah. It's uh, yeah. 72.7 again. Uh, we've got uh, Reserve Bank has forecast a mere one percent growth in GDP in 2024. So we've got a noise, and 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 uh, the minister. Um, Minister Gorawana has has made the comment that if we don't actually cut spending by March 2024, we run out of money. Now that's that's a stark reality, and in the context of that reality, the president and his cabinet need to appreciate that there's no shifting of money from some place to other places and so on. One, we need to cut expenditure. We need to ensure that we don't have vanity projects. We need to keep increases like public servant wage increases and so on within within inflation. Uh, We need to ensure that we begin to deal with some of the systemic issues that we certainly partner in government to try and address in energy, logistics, and crime and corruption. And it's those sorts of stuff that will give us the base to actually attract investment, grow our economy, and that's the only way to do it. There's no quick fixes to these things. So, yeah, so it will be a tough budget. I don't think the minister had much choice, and I think it's very encouraging that the president last night seemed to support it, and I think that's what the president needs to do. I think that's absolutely spot on. And that is the point I was hoping you would make, Chief Executive of Business Unity South Africa, Kaz Kuvadia. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106 FM.
The Money Show brought to you by APSA CIB. They're raising a glass to celebrate APSA's Pan-African excellence. APSA is a registered FSP. Brendan Seary standing by. He is going to bring us heroes and zeros from the world of advertising this evening. Um, always good value. And uh, also tonight, our Africa Business Report and the Investment School at half past seven. You may have mentioned, uh, missed the mention in the first half hour of the show this evening, Woolworths buying 93.45% very specific uh, stake in the pet retailer absolute pets now absolute pets has been owned by management and founders as well as sunlum private equity now woolies is buying it for an undisclosed amount of money now you could say hold on a second hold on woolies just getting you know coming back on track just getting your act together after the catastrophe in australia and a lot of investors in woolies are questioning the wisdom of buying into these pet stores but then you've got to remember it's rival have also got pet stores uh, and particularly ShopRite. The, the big gorilla um, ShopRite through Checkers has got 67 of its own stores and it's had those since 2021. So there's a bit of a copycatting happening. Can you copycat a pet store? But anyway, a bit of copycatting happening in the world of retail. Uh, if you feel like you're missing out, of course, you're going to go in and you're going to buy a, an alternative. Woolies, I suppose, is looking at it and saying people spend a lot of money on the food and the clothes and the nice creams and potions that are on the Woolies shelves for themselves. And those are the sorts of people who are going to be spending small fortunes on their pets as well. So that is the logic that is being uh, put at play here in terms of Woolies and its big spend on absolute pets. It's been around since 2005 um, and it's got 150 stores. It's got a huge online presence. It's got pet spas and pet services. So it's going to be interesting to see how that one fits in so often when you get these um, highly innovative and entrepreneurial businesses created by their founders and the founders stick around in the corporate they don't stick around very long because of the strictures that come with the corporate investment. Um, I'm sure they'll be delighted to get some money out of it, however, and I'm sure they, they're going to uh, be laughing all the way to the bank. Will the founders stick around so often? It doesn't really work out in the way in which they perhaps had hoped that it would. Coming up on the next Money Show, it's medium-term budget policy statement day. All of the gory details delivered by the Finance Minister Enoch Gordon-Guana. We analyze each and every single important aspect of it. We'll talk to Heik van Heerden, the Group Managing Director at EZ Shuttle, our shapeshifter on a Wednesday night, and also looking at lots of innovative things happening in the world of business unusual. That's all coming up next time on The Money Show. 702. Bruce is on The Money Show. Have we seen Christmas advertising? I wonder, Brendan Seary, the editor of Orchids and Onions, with our Heroes and Zeros this evening. Anything catch your eye so far? No, I think it's been a, you know, I mean, maybe I just, I, I get too cynical and I get my eyes glaze over, but I haven't really seen people getting on the Christmas bandwagon yet because they're still on the Springbok one. Um, and I think everybody's trying to milk that for as much as it as as they can. Um, and I, I think as well, maybe there's a bit of cynicism you know, amongst consumers about, um, oh, well, here we go. There are all of these advertising cycles that one goes through during the year, Christmas, New Year, back to school. Um, and I haven't really seen anything that jumps out at me um, in terms of, hey, Christmas is coming. Um, and I think that's, you know, maybe because 
one is kind of inured to it, or maybe because people haven't really got going yet. It's still another six weeks, no, seven, seven, eight weeks to go, really, isn't it? Um, six and a half or thereabouts, but who's counting? Uh, marketers are counting. Um, they, they certainly are capitalizing a lot more than perhaps they used to on Halloween. But I think the, the, the Springbok phenomenon is the thing that has captivated all of our attention. And um, as the World Cup fever sort of dies, as the week progresses and the cup does its rounds and everybody um, then gets back to some sort of uh, assumption of normal, I'm guessing we're going to get hit hard and fast probably next week onwards. Yeah, I, I would think so. And I think that um, everyone will be scratching around. The interesting thing about Christmas advertising, uh, Bruce, and, and I defy anyone who gets one of those knock and drop newspapers to tell me they don't read those ads, the inserts. Of course you do. doesn't matter where you're from. It's the best thing. Um, it's it's the incredibly um, yeah. hardworking and effective <laughs> advertising. Um, it really is. Um, and, it, you know, it's it's everything in one place, which is why it's so effective. And you can compare hundreds of different products or specifically what you're looking for. Um, and I think as we as we start winding into no, November and early December, we're going to see those particular inserts in those newspapers taking on a life of their own, really. It's a tough economy, and those are the inserts that do best at this time, of course, because everyone's looking for a deal, everyone's looking for a benefit, everyone's looking for an advantage. Um, in you know, with limited household budgets and with with really tough environment that we trade in at the moment, um, those inserts are going to be absolutely enormous. If you could keep an eye on those for us, I think it'd be quite an interesting one. Your hero this week goes to a motor brand. What has Toyota got right? Yeah, it just kind of resonated with me, uh, Bruce, because, you know, it's as you get towards the end of the year and you get more and more kind of exhausted, um, you start looking forward to the end of the year. And we've got a road trip planned, so we're heading off to the Eastern Cape in Meisner. Um, and I really love getting behind a cog, heading out on a road trip, especially that first day, getting up early before the sun rises, getting into the car and going off for a drive. And... and I, I watched the, the new ad for the, it's, it's actually not new, it's been around a while, for Toyota's Urban Cruiser, the small little SUV. Um, and and they've got it spot on because they're appealing to this new, what we used to call the dinks market, double income, no kids, um, what I'd call the Instagram generation. Wherever you go, you put it up, you post it, you put it on the gram, uh, you put it on Facebook. Um, and basically what they, they're saying is this is the car for you if you want to go and make your memories. And I think that's what people, you know, brands like Volkswagen realized a long time ago that a car is more than just a piece of transportation. It's actually the thing that helps generate memories for you and your family. Um, and this Urban Cruiser taps into that thing. It's that, that sense of, of this is the car that you need to go and explore the country. Um, but at the same time, as they, they're featuring the car in, in, the, in the great, beautiful outdoors, which this country has in abundance, then they're also cleverly looking at the little features, you know, like this, this car comes with Android Auto. Um, and as I discovered when I, I drove, it doesn't work always if you've got a lousy cell phone and a bad cable. So there's another thing. But it, it has that. Um, Android Auto, which enables you to use, uh, and or Apple CarPlay, which enables you to use your built-in maps in your phone, um, and that's in, that's a really great selling point for a lot of people. 
And I just thought it was, a, you know, it's a simple ad, but it, it's going to, it hits right to that generation that would be interested in getting out and, and traveling and then putting up on the ground. No, it's absolutely right. And again, timing-wise, it's absolutely spot on because we do like a road trip in December. And, you know, despite the temperatures, despite huge distances that you have to cover, it is the most efficient way of getting around if you've got lots of luggage and you want to take lots of stuff on holiday with you. If you're taking people on holiday with you, people drive. We love the the road trip as you do. Um, and yeah, there's uh, some exceptionalism in terms of uh, South Africa's motor vehicle advertising at this time of the year. So well done to Toyota with the Urban and cruiser, your zero will surprise many people, I suspect. Um, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, was with the whole, the sort of focus on, on the box, um, I saw a really good piece of what I call ambush advertising last night, in fact, Bruce, when um, an ambush advertising is back, is basically defined as when you haven't spent any money to become a sponsor or made any con contribution to a specific event, you suddenly muscle in on it. And you'll have seen it around all over the place. Um, everybody and his dog is, is trying to use rugby ball motifs without crossing the line and mentioning rugby world cup, but they're all taking advantage of the, of the rugby. Um, but there was an egregious example of ambush advertising last night done by um, one Sir Ramaphosa um, <laughs> and having spent very little government or any money or interest in the spring box, he was there, popped up in Paris, obviously to shake people's hands. And then last night he used the spring box glory and to unashamedly do an ANC campaign ad. Um, and, and that was, uh, you know, pretty shameless, pretty tasteless in, in my view. We didn't need another lecture on how wonderfully we're doing as a country. What we needed to do is to have really a basic, um, well done, guys, and what can, what, what can we do for you that we can, we can take this forward? Um, and that he didn't do it also was not a great... Um, he didn't do a great job of building his own brand nor that of his party. So he, he got an onion for that. And he gets an onion because politics ultimately um, is just another form of advertising and marketing, really, selling something to someone that they don't want or don't need. Um, I just I loved it. And Rich Mulholland, I don't know if you know Rich, he runs the business called Missing Link and he's a regular contributor on The Money Show on a Wednesday night when it comes to business unusual. He's a smart guy um, and he does lots of videos on presentation and public speaking. That's the nature of his business. Um, and somebody challenged him to do a critique of the president's speech last night. Um, and he it's one of the finest things i've seen in a long time i've reposted it on my linkedin feed this evening um and he just you know um the president is deadpan looking the poor guy must be exhausted i mean i do have empathy for him but he's exhausted with all of the travel and backwards and forwards and all of that sort of stuff but um rich makes the point that the president is talking about this great moment of celebration and this great moment of joy and national cohesion and how wonderful it all is and you just have rich chirping in there going mr president tell your face Tell your face. 
about the happiness. Tell your face about the joy. And the president's so busy concentrating on the auto cue that he's not in celebration mode. You don't get that sort of Madiba sense of real elation uh, and to, to capitalize on the opportunity that winning one of the greatest sporting contests on earth can bring you as a country. Um, yeah, and the focus was and narrow. I think, the focus yeah, was I think as well, the, focus the bottom was, line was is that this is no, you know, this is not, you know, we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. We're not in COVID anymore, Toto. So we're not prepared to cut him any slack. Um, and people, the scales have far from fallen from a lot of people's eyes. And um, he is just really, I mean, his public image has taken a battering. Just think back to COVID. We thought he was a hero. This was the guy that was going to lead us, you know, safely through the valley of death to the other side. And, and whether he did or not, um, you know, that, that was his image then. And it's completely different now. And so I think it, it is, you know, quite interesting. And by doing this kind of thing, he doesn't, he doesn't actually do himself any favours by using an opportunity for national celebration to do a thinly veiled party political campaign message. Not that thinly veiled. Um, and then uh, the part where I think people would be surprised, do you have a go to check the 6060 as well, who have been the superheroes, of course, of um, supporting the box through this entire saga. And they've done some incredibly clever things recently. Um, but there's somewhere where you think they've overstepped the mark. Yeah, I think they've done, I've given them plenty of orchids because I think they've got some really brilliant advertising and marketing ideas. What they did ahead of the cup final was they put out a whole bunch of stuff on social media saying, you know, we have creatively, um, in creatively um, what we have done is we've uh, daubed Paris with the colours of, of 6060 and you know, they said, with a little creativity, check a 6060 today, dress Paris in the unofficial box color. Now, they then provided a number of pictures of billboards, etc., around the French capital. Um, and I had a close look at these pictures, and I thought, this doesn't look real to me. And it didn't take me more than about 20 minutes of sleuthing and to find out they were stock shots um, and they were photoshopped. Now, they didn't actually say it was there, but the point is that <laughs> one has to be very careful as a brand in this day of this day and age of fake news to make sure that you're absolutely clear about the message because this was, to me, um, you know, more than just a kind of, well, we told, you know, we, we, we didn't say we did. This was a kind of a cynical attempt to show that Checker 6060 had a presence um, in a European capital city, which they didn't, although they did have a little motorcycle running around delivering stuff, that was which cute. was real and that clever and funny. Yeah, They didn't need to do this. This is what they didn't need to do it. Or yeah. if they did it, they, they should have said something like, imagine if we took over Paris, this is what it would look like. Not yeah. we did. Um, and I, you know, that just left um, a bad taste in mouth, particularly because at this juncture in, in the history of communication and information, there is so much fake news and it's going to get even worse with artificial intelligence coming around the corner. Um, and the, these these um, particular tools are very powerful. You know, advertising itself is, is, a, is the more presentable cousin of propaganda as we talked about previously, but I think this is, this is a, a dangerous um, precedent to set by them and um, and I called him out on it on Twitter and I got no response. So um, clearly they don't think 
it's important. But I do think it's it's important. It's important enough for them to get an onion for just you know not only just the the fact they did it themselves, but the fact that it's kind of for me anyway detracted slightly from the rest of the brilliant stuff they they've done. And let's hope they don't do anything so silly in future. Thank you very much uh, to uh, our rugby fever specialist this evening. Brendan Seary is the Orchids and Onions editor, but also giving us heroes and zeros this evening. After a brilliant campaign, overstepping the mark in his view, uh, Checkers 6060, a zero for claiming to have painted Paris in Checkers 6060 colours when it was just a little bit of clever trickery. Um, the, the, the moped in Paris did get uh, some good attention and that was well-deserved. Uh, then uh, his hero However, the, uh, the, the Toyota uh, Urban Cruiser gets an absolute thumbs up this week. The Money Show. The Africa Business Report. The Africa Business Report brought to you by SAA, the ones who fly SAA's growing route network. They're going back to Sao Paulo, Brazil. Brilliant news. Uh, your gateway to South America. Adina Games uh, with the business consultancy Africa at Work is our correspondent this evening on our Africa Business Report. You're looking forward to the AGOA conference in, in Joburg this week? Oh, um, hello, Bruce. Um Yes, okay. I, I was, sorry, I was just surprised to suddenly get you on the line. Um, uh, well, I'm, I'm not actually going to be attending the conference, but I am following it quite closely just because it is um, an interesting dynamic in African trade. Um, and I think that we're waiting to see how this will, whether they will adapt this model that hasn't been all that successful for Africa, really, except for maybe a handful of countries, including South Africa, because we are industrialized diversified economy and we play to some of the strengths of the of the of the products that are on the on the table but uh, most countries have not been able to outside the apparel um sector which would be mauritius ethiopia kenya etc so the, i think the question is is it, is it the right model for for africa um are the americans listening how does it square up with the african free trade area um, and and is it better should we maybe align it more closely to those objectives than looking at purely as, as a sort of a bilateral or, or continental play with with a, on a bilateral basis with with the US so i think there's a lot of issues that need to be looked at you know whether um its relevance is is still going to maintain itself without some of these changes is in question, especially as we have the BRICS sort of breathing down the, the neck of African trade, as it were, and um, and other partners. So it'll be very interesting to see how much how much change there is or whether we're just looking at kind of fiddling around because it's due to expire in September 2025. So that's a little way away. We do have time to renegotiate that and, and see whether how it can benefit better Afri- uh, Africa better. And in fact, four countries have been dropped from the program um, or will be from 2024, which was announced today as well. Um, I think the obvious suspects in ways um, it would be Niger, Gabon because of the political situation and also Uganda and uh, Central African Republic because of yeah. uh, violations of human rights. So that, that makes sense. And that speaks to this, this other thing that a lot of African countries don't like are these quite strict eligibility requirements, which include not just trade, but social, political and governance, etc. 
And it's a warning also to us that, you know, just because you don't like the politics of a country doesn't mean that you can't be trading with them. It doesn't mean you can't be doing business together. It doesn't mean you can't be using your soft power in places like the United Nations and other global forums. Uh, but you've got to give your business sector the best chance you can of success. And for so many South African producers of goods, particularly more luxury goods, the U.S. market is a, a wonderful uh, a wonderful place to export to. And if you get an advantage um, with low uh, with low barriers to entry, that is going to be great. Absolutely. I mean, it should have. It's, I think the idea was to spur more countries to develop products more and, and do more value addition in order to qualify. But I think rather than doing that, a lot of countries just drifted away from the initiative altogether. And then you've seen like the big oil producers, for example, Nigeria was a very big beneficiary um, in oil trade, oil and oil products. But that's fallen away a lot since like 2010 because, you know, the U.S.'s own energy profile has changed quite a lot. So there are there are issues there as well. For So, yeah, so I, it's not the biggest thing. Forever. It should be, as you say. There's a lot to take advantage of, but you do need to have that type of economy or certainly some sectors that can really benefit for, for it to really work. For South African companies doing business in places like Nigeria and Angola, and we saw we saw a statement coming out of MTN yesterday, which has got a business in Nigeria which is struggling permanently in the face of a, a very weak naira, and the World Bank confirming that you know the naira probably the worst performing currency in the world, and it's a, certainly affecting businesses that try to do business in that part of the world. Yeah, South African companies are really battling. Uh, well, of course, among all the others, I guess, but um, and and also quite a few. And I think some of the retailers, uh, Nampak, for example, as well, um, have a lot of businesses or have business in Angola as well. And you quite often find because these are two big oil producers. Although in this case, this is not so much an. It is related to oil in some level, but. Um, often you find that they both have problems at the same time. So the companies doing business in both of them um, have a double hit. But yes, the World Bank has actually released a report saying that um, that the, the, the these two currencies are the worst performing in sub-Saharan this year. Um, and Nigeria's currency has depreciated about 40% uh, so far, making it the weakest currency in the in the on the continent and you know this is this is uh, dramatic for for companies that are trying to well on all sorts of levels import export exp- repatriation of funds whichever way you look at this it is a it is a bit of a crisis and you know it's all spinning off these um uh, very deep reforms that were uh, done by the new president and and the, and this hope is still there that you know that this will turn around at some point but where is that turning point how far away is it and in the meantime it does have to be managed and the, and the government is casting about for ways to try and attract more foreign currency into the country so it can stabilize the naira um, and it does have some plan for 10 billion dollars it's a complicated thing so i won't go into it here but um, uh, you know that they 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 have a he has a the president has a very good economic team by all accounts managing all of these things but by the nature of it the, uh, when you unseat deeply embedded um, dysfunctional structures you are going to get this huge kind of disruption and that is what's happening there and I mean inflation is right up to thirty percent it's the worst in eighteen years there's a lot of stuff going on so it is it's hard times at the moment people have to ride it out or rethink their their participation I suppose. Give me a quick view on Zim's tourism. It's probably one industry that should be booming at the moment. Is it? Well, you know, yes, it is. I think the I think that's a, that's a it's a, a benefit and also a potential 
um, downside of, of that is too much development. Um, in t- I'm talking now specifically Victoria Falls, where I spent some time last week, um, where there's a lot of plans on the table. A lot of people want, everybody wants a, either a slice of riverbank or an island on the Zambezi to build their dream lodge and, and attract lots of five-star well-heeled guests. That seems to be the dream. And um, and you see a lot of hotels at lower levels. There's just a lot of development going on. And there is a kind of a tension with conservationists about killing the goose that lays the golden egg because, you know, too much development. Do people want to come to a place that's a bit of a bright lights Las Vegas, <coughs> Las Vegas in Zimbabwe um, or, or, you know, spend all their disposable income traveling many hours across the globe to come in and just see lots of, of, of that? Because um, you've also seen a change in the profile of, of tourists in, in Victoria Falls. You don't have so much that influx of adventure tourism, backpackers, you know, doing a white river rafting, all that kind of thing, which was very big 10 years ago even, or maybe even more recently. You're now seeing a real shift to older tourists who, who want to see um, you know, Americans coming to see the Victoria Falls, which is so natural and, and, and completely different from the experience of Niagara Falls. You know, that sort of thing. So I think we have to guard against... Um, overdoing their development and, and remembering that it's actually the tourists they're trying to attract, although the government is very keen to make it a conference centre. So uh, be, that doesn't, you know, then, then the conservation thing is not such a big issue. But the problem is once you've destroyed that, then you've destroyed it, you know. so Absolutely. Mm. Thank you, Diana Games. Welcome to The Money Show and to Garth McKenzie, the founder and editor of traderscorner.co.za. You were at the rugby at the weekend, were you, Garth McKenzie? Has that inspired some trading strategies? Yes, Bruce. Hi. It's wonderful to be back with you on the show again. And yeah, quite right. I was very, very fortunate to be at the game on Saturday. Um, and I've actually just got home from Paris this afternoon. So we stayed on a few days and toured Paris a bit, which was fun. So very much with the South African yes, and fantastic to see the box win on Saturday. So, uh, I mean, we haven't chatted for a long time, and that's my fault, not yours. Uh, my producer's fault, not mine. Let's blame them. Um, so, so <laughs> Garth, we, we haven't spoken about trading for a long time, and I do recall in the very distant past when we were talking about trading, you were the antithesis of what we assume a trader to be. You're about as far away from the wolf of Wall Street as I can imagine. Um, one has got this impression, of course, of traders of being wide boys who um, trade a thousand times a day, making micro cents on each and every single trade and by the end of the year they are are making absolute fortunes but you had a completely different strategy you set up of course trading accounts for your kids uh, famously about 10 years ago Um, and you were very big on being a very occasional trader when it came to actually building wealth using trading strategies if memory serves Yes, that's absolutely right, Bruce. And that still is pretty much the way I approach trading. Um, that approach that you mentioned of, of traders who actively trade and are in and out several hundred times a day. Um, you know, there are some traders like that and some of them do make money. But I think the key is that you need to find a trading strategy that fits with your personality type. And that very rapid, high-frequency type of trading strategy really doesn't gel with my personality type. And I I also think, you know, from a logistical point of view, very rapid trading, many, many trades throughout the day costs a lot of money. You build a lot of fees into your trading if you do that. So you might be your broker's favorite client. But, you know, to my mind, that's not really uh, a sustainable way to trade, not in my world anyway. 
And uh, they often say that actually good trading is very boring. And the wolf of Wall Street type trading is, is actually not the way to do it. So that's my perspective on it. That's my take on it. And I think you do need to be very responsible. You need to, need to manage your risks very carefully. And you need to have a very clearly thought out strategy that you adhere to when you're trading. And all of that might not sound particularly racy, but that's what generally works. Uh, okay, so let's talk about trading then, because I still get lots of questions from people saying, I want to trade, and this guy's offered me a package, and I want to buy a, go for the training on a Saturday morning, and they'll teach me what to do, and then I'm never going to have to work again. Um, let's skip all of the, the hype and the nonsense, and let us get, a I don't know, a game plan, if you like, if we're going to invoke the skill of Rassi Erasmus and uh, the Springbok rugby squad, I think we need to be approaching perhaps trading a bit like they approach winning a World Cup. Well, absolutely. And it's very timely as that you bring that analogy up because that's what I was also going to suggest. Uh, and the way I typically do it is if you, <laughs> you look at it and you say, well, you know, you need, first of all, you need to have a, a, a playbook or a, a rule book that that dictates how you trade and then you need to have a game plan um, and then you need to have some sort of a monitoring system so I guess let's start from a bigger picture perspective and talk about the playbook uh, this is the equivalent of the the rules of the game of rugby okay so you you create the rules and and there are no fixed rules in trading. This is one of the things that I think people find difficult is that there's actually no fixed rules. You have to be the person that makes the rules and then adhere to those rules. And those rules are termed the, the playbook. So if we go back to the, the, the comparison with rugby, your playbook is the, like the rules of the game. And whether that game is being played in South Africa or France or New Zealand or wherever, the rules of the game remain the same. The, the, the next step then is a game plan, which is what you need to then do on any particular day or any particular week in the market. And the game plan needs to fit within the rules of the game. So your, your game plan still needs to conform to your playbook, as it were. And obviously each day in the market is different. Each week in the market is different. So, you know, you may need to look at it in a slightly different way, but if you have a very well set out playbook or very well set out rules of what dictates when you take a trade and how you manage it and how big your position size should be, how far away a stop loss should be, how much of your capital you're willing to risk on an individual trade, et cetera, et cetera. These are all very high level aspects of your trading which form a part no, of that playbook I mean, to, to, that I refer to. Yeah. Just, just pause there for a moment because uh, already many people are going, huh? What? Playbook? I don't understand. Slow down, Garth McKenzie. So <laughs> when it comes to a, developing a playbook, it's, it's creating a, the, the parameters. And this is where you've got to know yourself really well. And this is where I get so scared when some, when people come to me and they say, I want to be a trader. Because they haven't got the first idea of something as deeply important and complicated as risk management, where you, you kind of think, well, I'll just take a few bets on shares and some will go up and some will go down and I'll be, I'll win what I lose in the swings. I'll win on the roundabouts. And as long as I have more winners than losers, I'll be fine. But actually 
what you're talking about here is actually a deeply uh, formulaic approach to something that most people think is about sort of flying by the seat of your pants. Yeah, that's right. So exactly. I mean, most people do think it's flying by the seat of your pants, but if you're going to approach this properly, you do need to have some fairly uh, stringent rules in place. So I am not, we're, we've obviously got a short time that we're speaking to each other. So we can't get too deep into what, what a playbook entails. But at a sort of a high level, if I had to say very basically, let's quickly build a playbook here that probably has a reasonable chance of working. You could, for example, say, all right, I'm going to be filtering for shares that are only trading above a 200 day moving average or shares that are only trading above a 50-day moving average. And then you can take it one step further and say, well, they need to be above those moving averages, but they need to be short-term oversold on some of the technical momentum indicators that we look for. And again, I'm not trying to overcomplicate it, but I'm saying that if you put a couple of these simple rules in place, it will enhance your probability of success. And I think that's the key to trading is always understand that it's a probabilities game. There is no certainty in trading. Um, you're always going to get some of your trades wrong. Even the best traders in the world get quite a few trades wrong. You know, statistically, from what I've seen, the, the, the best traders out there consistently get maybe 60 to 65% of their trades as winners, which by definition means that they are losing on 35 to 40% of the trades that they enact. Now, the next key if that is the case, is that you need to make sure that your winning trades end up making you more money on a relative basis than what your losing trades cost you when you're wrong. And I think that's where a lot of people tend to go wrong is they don't cut the losses quickly when they happen. They tend to ride losers and 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 also, on the other hand, tend to cut winners too quickly as well. And that's a bad habit. You ideally actually want to be running your winners try and maximize those so that they make you know three, four, five times more on a relative basis than what your losing trades will lose you when you are wrong. And if you can get that right, so as I say, start by having a, a system that gives you an edge, meaning that you, you are, over time, you'll have a better than 50% probability of being successful, and then overlay that with a risk management system that ensures that on the trades that you do get wrong, you only lose a relatively small amount of money. And on the trades that you do get right, it allows you to make a relatively bigger amount of money. And if you can repeat that process yeah. over and over through time, you will have a profitable trading strategy. And it also stops you from being silly. It stops you from being emotional. It stops you from getting either too excited or too depressed, I would assume. In terms yes. of if you have a, a playbook that is good and carefully thought through and, and, and mindful of risk and opportunity, well, you then probably have a, a better chance of success. You most definitely do. And you made the use of the word emotions there, which is a very important word because emotions, when it comes to trading and investing, invariably are the enemy. 
and you need to try and control your emotions. I'll never say that you can't be emotional because that's not possible. We're all human beings and we all have emotions. But I think that the successful traders and the successful investors have the ability to control their emotions a lot better than the unsuccessful ones do. And if you have a, a, a set of rules that guide you, you know, if this happens, then I do that. Or if X happens, I do Y. If you have those rules, then at least it gives you the framework to work within. And that'll also help you to not be emotional about the decisions you're making. Um, it'll help you to not get too elated when things are going well, because that can be problematic. But on the other hand, it'll also help you to not get too down in the dumps and despair too much when things are going badly. The best traders that I've encountered in my career are relatively even-keeled people. They don't get massively excited when things are going well, but they also don't get too depressed and down in the dumps when things are going badly. They kind of are able to be relatively even-keeled from an emotional perspective. And I think having a rule book that guides the way they trade helps to ensure that they that their emotions mm. don't get too extreme in one direction or the other. Now, when you talk to financial advisors, they'll say, don't check on your investments every day. Don't even check on them every week. Don't even check on them every month. Check in occasionally, maybe once a quarter, just to make sure that, you know, you, you, you're still happy with the way things are going. Trading versus sort of long-term investment strategies when it comes to buying unit trusts and when it comes to um, buying, buying different assets, I think is different to what you're proposing. It is different. I think one's got to be quite careful in differentiating between trading and investing. Um, I always used to make the, the comparison on the courses that I did when I still lived in South Africa that if we had to look at it and do it, draw a, a metaphor, trading is a bit like um, dating and and investing is a bit like marriage. So Explain. in investing, Explain. you do tend to write out the ups and downs and you know smiles and frowns like in a marriage. In dating, you know, that's relatively short term of nature. And uh, often if you're not coming right quite quickly, you tend to move on to the next thing. So that, that, that was the, and it always generated a few laughs and hopefully the audience is laughing right now, but that was the way I always look, used to look at it. So, so trading can be more exciting, but it also, uh, it, 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 it involves a different approach and trading typically is more short term in nature than investing is. And by virtue of that, the, the, the type of monitoring that you're going to do on your trading will be far more frequent. I would say looking at your trading results only quarterly is not nearly often enough. No. You probably do need to be checking in on your trading daily or at least once a week, I think. Um, whereas your investments, absolutely, you know, you don't want to be making decisions by the, by the day because things change quite quickly. Um, you know, from one day to the next, you need to be sort of take a high level view with your investments when it comes to monitoring them. But when it comes to trading, your monitoring, your monitoring system does need to be a lot more hands on and it does need to be a lot more regular. How much financial literacy do you need to have to get started? Um, because this idea, people do believe that you can buy a software program and it will teach you and you can just learn as you go along. And while you're about to give up your day job, because look, you're going to be serious about this and you know, you're going to be like Hernando Cortez, the conquistador and burn all the ships and you're going to focus on your trading because you, I don't know, got a bonus and inheritance or something else. Um, and you've decided that this is going to be your life now and you, 
you've got to be, I think, more than astute, more than calm, more than patient, more than um, smart. You've got to have a very high level of financial literacy. You're absolutely right. You have to have a high level of financial literacy. You need to have experience. And to that point that you made about people who think that they can just quit their job and take up trading, yeah, I get quite a few of those kind of approaches from time to time. And it, it terrifies me, quite honestly, Bruce. It would be the equivalent of me saying to you, hey, go and buy yourself a set of decent golf clubs and next week uh, go and take lessons from the pro down at your local club. And the week after that, you'll be able to enter the PGA Tour and start making money from playing golf. I mean, the idea is completely ridiculous, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And and trading is no different. It's no different. Uh, you need to invest a lot of time, effort, energy to get the necessary experience to become a successful trader. It doesn't happen overnight. And unfortunately, I think because the barriers to entry have become lower and lower over the years, you know, anyone can effectively go and open a trading account online now and stick some money in and, and you're able to play on effectively what is the same playing field as the best traders in the world. However, the best traders in the world have all the experience all the systems, all the risk management, etc. whereas you don't as a start-out trader. So there is no quick, uh, you know, get-rich-quick scheme when it comes to trading. They say in trading that the quickest way to, um, to, get rich, to get poor quick is to think you're going to get rich quick. It's, it's a lot harder than what people think it is. And unfortunately, a lot of the marketing around trading is, is devious. And um, it's it's designed to lure people into open trading accounts and yeah. put their money in. And, and uh, but the the very harsh truth of the matter is that it's not easy. The success rate is extremely low for people who take up trading on an active basis. How then do you keep sane and have a system where you can monitor your results in an, uh, in a calm and objective fashion? so that you don't either get ahead of yourself and start thinking you're a genius or maybe just lose hope in the first week because actually you've made some tough calls. Yeah, so I think one of the ways is that you, you make sure that the risk that you take on individual trades is relatively small. So, for example, the way I trade is I typically don't allow myself to lose less than 0.5% of my money on an individual trade. So if I was if I'm trading with a million rand, for example, then I don't want to be losing more than 5,000 rand on an individual trade, right? That's half a percent of the total capital. That's quite conservative and very conservative by, by some people's measures. But the thing about that is it enables you to stay in the game. And if you're losing half a percent of your money on an individual trade, well, the nice thing is that when you, you know, after that, you still have 95 99.5% of your money left over afterwards. And that's not going to put you in a space where you can't afford to go out and make the next trade. So I think that's, you know, one of the ways that I kind of can continue going. And if you do hit a tough patch where you have what we call as a cluster of losses, um, where you get, you know, five, six, seven, ten trades in a row wrong, and it happens, believe me. That the, the loss that you take in that cluster of losses is not 
massive on a relative basis. And keep in mind that clusters do happen both ways. So as much as you might have a cluster of bad trades in one spell, you can also have a cluster of good trades in another spell where suddenly you get five or six or 10 trades right in a row and you make very good money in that period. The key is to always stay within the rules of your playbook and not deviate uh, not allow your emotions to, to to pull you off course, be it you know, uh, getting too aggressive when things are going well or getting too down in the dumps and then starting to try and revenge trade when things are going badly. Stick to the rules. Revenge Stay trade. within the, the <laughs> Well, revenge trading is a is a very is a very well known term in the business, and effectively, it's like the name says. It's like, well, I've lost money now. I need to make it back, and I'm coming back to get it. Exactly, and and unfortunately, that is usually the start of a very bad downward spiral, uh, where where Mister Market will dish out a few more solid hidings if you try and revenge trade. It's not a good idea. In fact, if you're having a tough time in the market, my, yeah. my suggestion usually is to actually step out the ring for a bit and have a break and then come back and try again later once your emotions have subsided a bit. It's not a, it's not that different, I suppose, from sort of being out on the town at midnight and watching some guy who feels he's been insulted by another bloke and he's, you know, three sheets to the wind and he's had too many beers to drink and he decides, no, now he's going to go and teach the six foot eight bouncer a lesson and he's going to go and box him where it hurts most. And, you know, and it only ends one way. And I suppose revenge trading is a little bit like that. You're, you're annoyed. It's exactly like that. It's exactly like that. And, um, and to your point, you know, nothing good happens after midnight. (laughs) (laughs) Garth McKenzie, what a joy to speak to you again. Don't be a stranger. Founder and editor, traderscorner.co.za, making data driven decisions, making sure that your strategies are in place. It's really so important. And using rugby analogies, because he went to the rugby and he's still euphoric. Founder and editor, traderscorner.co.za, Garth McKenzie this evening on the money show.